Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Rory, I think we were, we were quite pressed for time last week. We didn't do as many as we like to because we had that wonderful interview with Michael Heseltine, the first in our leading series. Um, so let's crack, let's crack through as many as we can today. Very good. Okay, well, here's a question for you then. Ellis Davis, could Boris Johnson lose the whip what would be the likely fallout if Sunak were to remove the whip from Boris Johnson? And here, Alice, I'm just going to I'm going to call on you to to stop your relish. Try to be realistic. If you were actually, for some bizarre reason, advising Rishi Sunak, would you ever advise him to take the whip off Boris Johnson? And what would happen if he did? Wow. Well, it's an it's an interesting because it's like a mirror of Keir Starmer with Jeremy Corbyn, isn't it? Successor. The leader, the former leader is still around and still sort of has the capacity to cause difficulty. I think that would be a pretty nuclear option. I wonder whether Rishi Sunak is hoping. I don't know. I don't know what his relationship with Johnson's like. I wonder whether he's hoping whether this privileges committee actually does come out very, very strongly against Johnson. Just quickly to interrupt, I think his relationship with Johnson is terrible because I think Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson supporters blame Rishi Sunak for toppling Boris Johnson. Remember the reason, really, in the end, the thing that did for Boris Johnson was Rishi Sunak's resignation. That's what triggered those 52 ministerial resignations that brought him down. And that's why they all got behind Liz Truss. Did, did I see something the other day of where, where Sunak or somebody close to Sunak was saying that, was quotes confirming that Johnson is going to stand again in Uxbridge? I, um, well, I think Boris Johnson himself has said he wants to stand again. Yeah, he definitely wants to stand again. But there's all these stories about him going to try and find a seat that's a lot safer than Uxbridge. Um, he is, I've said this before, I'll say it again, he is the turd that will not flush away. And he still has a pretty disturbing degree of popularity, which is why it probably would be more dangerous. Do you really think he does? I'm afraid he does. I mean, obviously, I really dislike him, but I think the reason why you might be a bit reluctant to take his whip away is he probably is the only conservative politician that has a real personal following as opposed to a party following. He definitely has personal recognition. And he has he has some people, Nadine Dorries, Lee Anderson, all these sorts of people who absolutely think he sort of walks on water. I think the public have, uh, in the main, have absolutely had it with him. Look, and I, I always do try, like, you know, I was up in Burnley at the weekend and I always have a little wander around and I talk to a few sort of people that I always keep the finger on the pulse. And some of them were Johnson supporters. I, I didn't get any sense of people thinking this was even serious to be contemplated. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, here's one for you. Given her abhorrent comment to the Holocaust survivor, Joan Slater, this is from somebody called Simba Steph. And we've got a lot of questions about this. I think this and Nadim Zahawi were the, the two, by far the two most asked about subjects. Given her abhorrent comment to the Holocaust survivor, Joan Slater, why hasn't Suella Braverman been arrested for hate crime? And I think that's a bit strong, I have to say. But maybe this is, this is more relevant. Spacey Carey, is it ethical or even legal for the Home Office to post tweets about the video of Braverman at a constituency meeting basically demanding it be taken down. Is there any precedent for something like this? I don't know if you follow this, Rory, but a, a Holocaust survivor called Joan Slater stood up at a, a constituency meeting with the Home Secretary and really quite movingly spoke of her own story, but then said, you know, 
do, do you have no regard for the consequence of the sort of language that you use when you're talking about um, immigration? And um, Braverman replied and said, no, she, she was not going to apologize for the language she used and not going to apologize for what she was trying to do. An edited version of this video was then posted online and the Home Office on Twitter put out a statement demanding that it be removed. Yeah, it was, well, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting one, isn't it? For listeners who are real super geeks on this, it's worth looking at the question because it's quite an interesting one. So if you want to see the edited version, go to Owen Jones on YouTube, who plays the clip that went viral, which is a kind of clip that went out from uh, this campaigning NGO, which is about 45 seconds long. And what it does is it goes from the Holocaust survivor saying, you know, won't you apologize for this language? And then cuts immediately to Swella Braveman saying, I'm not going to apologize. And in fact, it makes her seem unbelievably rude, lacking in empathy. And then look at the three and a half minute actual full recording of what happens. And it's very interesting. I mean, I think you can disagree with Swella Braveman very strongly and say that I certainly feel that she should apologize for using that language. It's bad language to use. But actually, her reply over three and a half minutes begins with her saying how much she values asylum, how her own father came over from Uganda, how proud she is of taking in Ukrainian refugees, of which 150,000 have come to Britain, how proud she is of taking Syrian and Afghan refugees, and trying to say her specific point is about people crossing the, the channel and boats. So, it's a, it's a thing where I'm a bit divided. On the one hand, mm. I really dislike the way Suella Breverman talks and thinks. But equally, I've got some sympathy with people who say that the way that video was cut was deliberately designed to make her seem far more kind of rude and lacking in empathy than she actually was at the moment. Although Joan Slater, the woman concerned, the Holocaust survivor, she was, she was obviously there for the whole episode. Uh, she was really, really unimpressed and quite shocked, I think, by the response that she got. And what do you think of this thing about the Home Office, an official government Twitter account dealing with something and demanding something be removed from Twitter? But what was this? Was not even a government meeting. It's an interesting question for you if you'd been... So, so it's a big scandal. She's the Home Secretary, and this mm. appears to be her formal statement on immigration. So what happens in the way that that's cut is that it goes from her saying, I'm a strong supporter of asylum. I welcome Syrians, Ukrainians, Afghans. I welcome the fact that Ugandarians were taken into Britain. Britain should be very proud of taking people who are fleeing persecution. But we have a serious problem that we need to be honest about with 45,000 people crossing the channel mm. and turns it into her effectively saying, I'm not going to apologize for sounding like the Nazis. So I guess if you were a government communications person, you'd be pretty angry about that. Yeah. Rory, I've just realized I've been calling her Joan Slater. Her name is Joan Salter. Very good. So listen, loads of questions. We had lots of questions about Zahar. We had lots of questions about, which we talked about briefly on the main podcast, lots of questions about Braverman. I think the third most asked about subject was probably Labour and Brexit again. Okay, go on. Give us your views on that then. Well, let me just give you some of the questions because yep. their, their views are quite interesting. Anne Greensmith, why does Keir Starmer persist with the nonsense about making Brexit work? It's absolutely infuriating brackets, I'm a long-standing Labour member. Berk Tsiga, is Sadiq Khan's questioning of Brexit Labour's way of testing the waters for a more honest conversation about the damage it's done, is doing and will do? Seems to me that London would be a safe place to try this out. And Khan is well-placed, he's outside Parliament. Jockey Fox, genuinely concerned that Keir Starmer is alienating younger voters 
in trying to win back red wall seats. Um, I've actually written my new European column this week all about this. I, I still think that Labour can afford to be much, much, much more aggressive against the government. Even on the Laura Koonsberg interview at the weekend, Keir didn't want to answer the question directly yes when he was asked whether the economy was worse off as a result of Brexit. He wanted to focus on, you know, we're going to make it work, blah, 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 blah. And I've said to you before, Ray, I understand why he doesn't want to make it the centrepiece of the next election. But I think it's becoming pretty much accepted wisdom that the thing is a dud, that there's lots of things that have got to be done to change it. There are lots of things that can be done to change it without necessarily going back even into the single market, let alone the European Union. And I think I think Labour do underestimate how many people there are on the pro-European side of the argument who just want to hear that. They don't. People are ready to, for, for him to say, "Look, this is such a divisive issue. We've been through all that. We're not going back on it. It's least for a generation, whatever it is he wants to say." But then we've got to fix it. And I think when he keeps saying "make Brexit work," people get the sense of, "Oh, well, he means that he thinks it's going well." Fix the mess, I think, is a far better line, because there's no doubt in my mind Brexit is now an absolute catastrophic mess. Yeah. Do, do you think it's possible? I mean, obviously, presumably part of his calculation is that he's so far ahead in the opinion polls that he doesn't want to take any risk. And he, he hopes that if he just keeps Stam on issues like this, and as you say, avoids being dragged into the, the tiger traps that the, mm. his opponents can be digging for him. Do you think there's a chance that he can make it through and then change his mind on these issues? Or is the problem if you put in your manifesto that you're not going to rejoin the customs union and single market, you're a bit stuck and it's not actually possible for you to change when you're in office? I don't think you can you can veer wildly from your manifesto. I mean, look, the, the Johnson government gave up any sense that the manifesto mattered a damn, but I think part of restoring decent government is actually to say the manifestos do matter. Um, but the, the other point, Rick, just imagine for a minute if this was like a Tory opposition and a Labour government that had won an election on a whole set of promises which turned out to be bogus, where there was massive economic damage being done as a result of what they delivered, the Tories would never, ever, ever, ever stop going on about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And I think there will be people certainly around Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, who desperately looking for something to bring growth, will be very tempted to think, like you and me, that part of the answer is much better trading relationships with Europe. Absolutely. Particularly as we're disengaging from China, because I think as we talked about before, one of the fantasies of some of the hard Brexiteers was that they could, and this is going back to 2015-16, that if they left the European Union, they'd have this wonderful bonanza of trading with China. But as we are disengaging from China on security grounds, as China's economy struggles, there's more and more reason to be more closely integrated with the European economies again. Yeah. Now, as you rightly point out, Rory, I, I do usually have a few cheap shots at Tory MPs, and I, and I regularly take down Tory MPs. So I'm going to make an observation that all of the questions, and there were quite a few of them that we got about Chris Skidmore's report on net zero, were broadly positive. Oh, that's very good. Very good. Yeah. And also, I, I, I must admit, I've not read the whole thing. I do intend to at some point. Um, but the coverage I saw of it suggested to me that, that it really was a genuine deep dive with a, you know quite a lot of very, very interesting ideas and proposals. And the question now is whether the government will pick it up. So, so Chris Skidmore's an interesting figure. Um, somebody who joined Parliament with me, real intellectual, wrote serious books on, on medieval history. Um, he's, he's somebody who was also very much thrown to the side by Boris Johnson and everybody coming in around that. Rishi Sunak's brought him back, I think, to chair this net zero report. He actually signed 
the net zero legislation into Parliament. So he's a, he's a he's an example of maybe half a dozen quite sort of bright, interesting Conservative MPs who were really thrown sideways by Boris Johnson and who are now having sort of partial restoration under Rishi Sunak. Yeah, I'll just give you a couple of the, the questions we've got. Matthew Knight, the Skidmore Review demonstrates net zero is a win-win for growth, opportunity and climate. Energy industry, businesses, local authorities have known it for ages, desperate to get on with delivery. Why is it taking so long for politics to catch up? Mark Morris, now that Chris Skidmore's tour de force report into the UK's position on net zero has been published, its recommendations are many onerous and necessary do you think the current UK state machinery is capable of addressing them? Um, uh, well, the answer to that, I think, is yes, probably, provided there is the political leadership behind it. But I don't know about you, Rory, but I will at some point uh, some point read it. I think maybe also he's, he's a very good writer. He's written these biographies, people like Richard III. And I wonder whether it's not a help with this report that he's somebody who writes well, writes quite clearly and powerfully, which is unusual sometimes with government reports. Francis Hind. You are not entitled to comment on Harry's book, Spare, if you have not read it. Discuss. Oh, blimey. Well, I read a bit in the airport. <laughs> oh, did you? You said you weren't going to read it. No, I, 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 got, I was in Sydney last week, where incidentally, I was stopped by no less than six fans for the podcast in Sydney. No fewer. No fewer. No fewer. No fewer. Yeah. Again, grammar trouble again. Um, and, and I wandered along the Sydney shoreline thinking about the teal independence, those women who were elected to parliament. Yeah. I talked a bit to an Australian minister who's from obviously from the Labour Party, who's wondering whether actually these independents are going to get re-elected again, because it was easier for them to run against the right-wing government than it might be for them to run again when, when Scott Morrison's government's not there. And also because uh, Al- Albanese seems to be going down pretty well at the moment. Seems to be doing, doing pretty well, yeah. Despite the fact that I was pretty shocked during the election campaign that he seemed to be completely unable to give any figures on Australia's GDP, its growth, or the most basic kind of economic statistics, but maybe that's not a requirement. Okay, um, Mars Pioneer. Gas prices explained by something other than Ukraine. Wholesale gas prices are now below where they were when Russia invaded Ukraine. Can you explain why we're still paying through the nose on our bills? Do you want me to have a go on that? Or you? Yeah, definitely. Definitely one for you. All right. So the, the answer there seems to be that Absolutely right. Wholesale gas prices coming down, but the UK is in real trouble. The UK is in trouble. Firstly, we didn't store enough gas. So Boris Johnson's government in particular was very, very reckless in storing gas. We were only storing 10 terawatt hours of gas when the Italians, the Germans, the French all got you know, 10, 15 times as much in storage. We also use much more gas than other countries. Mm. We're having to import LNG and we're competing with Asia, and we had a very cold winter. So all of that means that the gas prices, sadly, are not coming down quite as steeply as the wholesale prices are coming, although they will come down, and that will help the government a little bit in its economic calculations. They're not going to end up having to pay quite as much on Mm. trying to follow through on the minimum pricing. Good. Colin McQuaid, in normal times, a politics show would not top the UK podcast charts, obvious charms notwithstanding. Do you think the success of the rest of his politics and other unnamed, more frivolous rival podcasts reflects the dearth of quality of political analysis on the mainstream media? P.S. Give me a shout out. It's my birthday. So happy birthday, Colin. Happy birthday, Colin. Well, I, I wonder whether part, part of the reason we're doing well, without us being too smug, is that we do find a way of disagreeing and having quite strong opinions, which is probably a bit more difficult for the BBC, isn't it? Because they've got to worry all the time about impartiality, whereas you and I are able to fight, argue, have strong views. In fact, sound more like normal people talking about politics than maybe 
conventional media is able to. Yeah, but we are, I guess in this context, we are both presenter and interviewee. Whereas I think maybe what the question's getting at is that when the when the mainstream media, broadcast media, set up discussions and debates, it's usually done with the view to finding the conflict rather than finding the agreement. I wonder if that's what he's saying. And also you're an insider. And we're made both of us in small ways are yeah. insiders, which maybe gives yeah. us, you know, we can talk about, you can talk about being Tony Blair's government, I can talk about being an MP, mm. and maybe that gives mm. it a little bit of an, yeah. an edge. For it. Anyway, we mustn't get too smug. We're going to go for the break. So welcome back to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. So I, I found there was quite, quite a niche one, but I, I thought rather a nice one um, from The Gambia. Uh, George Close came across this week something about the seventh anniversary of Embrima Solo Sandeng's, he's a former opposition politician in Gambia, his murder. Sounds like a very interesting, courageous man. Wondering if either of you encountered him in any of your many foreign engagements. Well, I, I didn't, so I'm assuming you did. No, I, I didn't, but he is, there's a lovely, if people are interested in following up, it's rather wonderful. Seven years after he was murdered, he's been honored as a, with a state funeral in the Gambia. It's a lovely piece about him on the BBC. And he essentially is a real example of the kind of incredible risks that many people in the world take around politics. We complain a lot about British politics, but I was in Qatar recently and was talking to Bilawal Bhutto, who's the Pakistan foreign minister. And of course, uh, his mother, Benazir, was, was killed. Yeah. His grandfather was killed. And there are many countries where it's still the case that for all the things that we say about politics, people are showing very, very considerable courage. I was talking about mm. President Hamid Karzai remaining behind in Afghanistan or the Afghan female lawmaker who was tragically killed just, just two days ago. So I think worth remembering. And if people want to, um, to follow up, nice article about Sanding on the BBC. Another example of somebody who can continue to inspire after death and also continue to be honoured after death. I went to see the film Till at the weekend, um, which I really strongly recommend. What's it about? Well, it's about a young boy called Emmett Till, who was abducted and tortured and lynched and dumped in a river in Mississippi by racists, young black boy. And the star of the film, the main focus of the film is his mother and her kind of never-ending fight to get justice, which she doesn't get. Um, the two guys who had finally charged with his murder, they get off with an all-white jury. But she keeps on campaigning. She gets involved with the kind of civil rights movement and so forth. And then just last year, Joe Biden signed into law the Emmett Till anti-lynching law bill. Right. So, and I just thought it was a wonderful story. There's, you know, he obviously he died age, age 14. She died some years ago. And yet here we are, 2022, new American president, and he makes a law making a hate crime a federal crime. Here's, here's a question for you. We didn't get onto it in the main pod, which is around Joe Biden and his papers. So Joe Biden's been found, it appears, to have also taken classified papers out of the office in the same way that Donald Trump was discovered by the FBI to have done so. And it's been a real shock for many of my friends in the US because when Donald Trump was found doing it, the assumption was this was an incredible sort of more evidence of just how evil and irresponsible and corrupt he was. And now Joe Biden appears to have done the same thing. I thought, even when the Trump story came out, I hope I reflected this on the podcast, that I was a bit cautious about saying that Trump had done this purely out of 
kind of evil and corruption. I think there's a lot of carelessness and vanity and casualness mm. that goes on with the way that elected politicians often treat classified papers. You remember Hillary Clinton got in trouble, for example, about using her Gmail account. And I think it extends to most of us. Top secret papers are different because we have to see them in special locked rooms and we can't take them out. But papers of lower classification, I think politicians should be pretty wary about going around attacking other people about it because I think there's a lot of there, but for the grace of God, go I. But I don't know where you, where you fall on this. No, I, th- I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I was always struck working in Downing Street. I mean, we were pretty, I'd say we were pretty tight most of the time. But, you know, you did often just see stuff kind of sort of lying around. Yeah, particularly stuff that wasn't top secret. I mean, the stuff they're getting in trouble for, and this is true of Trump as well as Biden, is a couple of classifications down. It's not revealing the names Mm. of agents. I mean, it's hard to know without knowing what the papers are and also what reason they gave for it. It was interesting that Biden, as I understand it, as soon as he realized he was, they were there, he fessed up, as it were. And I, don't, I think you're right, though, about the looseness of it. The other thing I was always very surprised is that, you know, when Tony Blair became prime minister, and, I, you know, he's busy and he's got tons of stuff to do, he wasn't really given that much of a briefing about all that sort of stuff about, you know, I think that people just make assumptions that everybody's going to be very, very responsible. And 100% right. I've always been struck by that, how little briefing there is. And it's particularly true when people take over, you know, for example, as defense secretary, there have been some pretty, uh, you know, defense secretaries, many defense secretaries in Britain who've had absolutely no experience of defense or the military until the day they actually walk into these these offices. And it's taken for granted, I think, partly because soldiers find it very difficult to imagine that somebody doesn't know the difference between a harpoon and a javelin. Mm. or the difference between a Challenger tank and an Apache helicopter, because these things are things they've taken for granted for 10 years. And civil servants, the same, because they've all been trained on classified documents. It's difficult for them to remember that the person they may be dealing with may have been three years ago, a local councillor or local businessman, local Mm. teacher, and have had nothing to do with these kind of documents before. Well, you mentioned mentioned Challenger tanks there. Nathan Orman, what do we think about the UK's decision to send Challenger 2 tanks to Ukraine? What does this mean for the UK's defence capability? Will it encourage Germany to send leopards? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to bear in mind is that the UK has been pretty shamefully getting rid of its tank capacity for a long time now. So really from the late sort of 2000s onwards, Britain had decided that there wasn't going to be another war in Europe. I remember when I was a very young soldier, I I joined the army on a short service limited commission in 91. So just after fall of the Berlin Wall, we were still doing Russian tank identification and Mm. thinking about how we were going to fight on the German planes. But by, you know, 10 years ago, we'd gotten to a situation where everybody thought there wasn't likely to be another European land war. Everything was moving towards cyber or counterinsurgency campaigns in places like Afghanistan. And that meant that we were getting rid of our tanks. So we've really run down our armored capacity, haven't really invested in renewing them. I'll be a bit concerned about actually what state these these vehicles really are in that we're sending to Ukraine. And how many, how many do we have left? Very, very few. We, we dropped down to one of the lowest levels compared to countries like France. I can check the figures for you. I give you permission to look at your friend, Mr. Google. Thank you very much. I'm guessing that we're down in the hundreds, but I will, mm. I will check for you. And, and France, on the other hand, decided to try to keep much more of a capacity. So the UK has a total fleet of 227 tanks, which is just absolutely tiny compared to the US or Germany. How many thousand have the Russians got? Well, the Russians, I think, have got <laughs> 22,000. The United States has got 8,725 and we've got 200 and whatever. 
to put it in context. Yeah. Global Britain. Global Britain. There we are. You'll see that places like Greece and Jordan are well ahead of us. Eritrea is well ahead of us. No. Azerbaijan's got more than us. Lebanon's got more than us. We should talk, by the way, we should talk soon about Azerbaijan and Armenia because what's going on there is pretty extraordinary as well. Uh, can I ask you this question? Because I think you might have more to say about it than me. Heather Butler, can you reflect on the reforms required in the Met Police in the light of today's breaking story, read David Carrick and previous scandals? Well, I, I listened to an interview this morning with the Met Police Chief, uh, Alex Rowley, and I did so in the company of my daughter, Grace, and Fiona her mum, my partner. And I, I am a pretty strong defender of the police. Yeah, you're always defending them, even when I'm quite critical. In fact, I think we had a big, big argument about this where I was trying to be a bit tough on them. Yeah, I, 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 can, I can, listen, I can criticise all sorts of things about the police, but I, I in general think we're pretty lucky to have a, in the main, pretty good consensual policing around the, around the UK. But this was just horrific. And listening to Alex Rowley, it was, it's the fact that this guy's sort of been there for so long and getting away with so much and going through vetting systems at the same time. So clearly there, there is, I think we have to accept some sort of cultural issue. Rowley was talking about there being now 800 cases that they're looking into. Well, that's a lot of, that's a lot of policemen. Policemen yeah. and women. I think in the main it will be men. And, and there was a big report, wasn't there, a few months ago by somebody who'd worked, I, I forget her name, but she's a lady. Is, is it Louise Casey? Louise Casey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a quite a disturbing, bigger report about some of the, what she sees as the structural failings that still exist in places like the Met. Yeah. And a lot of this seems to be about a real reluctance to investigate senior officers. Mm. I mean, I, I think it's understandable in a way, but it's also, in the end, it's wrong. It's, mm. it's a sense that people don't go after their own, they're trying to cover up. And particularly David Carrick, I mean, he was part of this real elite, which you and I know quite well, which is the, the diplomatic and protection officers mm. who are really the sort of, you know, part of the cream of the cream. And he was able, I think, to use that to really intimidate people. So there are some questions, I'm afraid, around the police, which maybe we oh, need no, to get no, into listen, there, there, there are, And I think the other thing that makes this in a way particularly shocking is, is just, it's not that long since the Sarah Everard case. It's not that long. And the sense you have is that there have just been too many of these for you to think there isn't some sort of systemic, broader cultural problem there. Now, Alex Rowley did what Cressida Dick did before him. He said, you know, the, he's going to spare no effort. He's going to do everything necessary. He's going to change it. He's gonna, you know, my sense of him is I think he comes over pretty well. Yeah. Louise Casey back in September was saying the force has allowed abhorrent officers to stay in its ranks. Mm. Uh, there's too much misogyny and racism. And I, I guess she was she was coming after the, the Sarah Everett case. But more than half of the Met officers found guilty of sexual misconduct over a four-year period up to 2020 kept their jobs. Mm. So it, it, I'm afraid what she's trying to argue, mm. uh, yeah. with more than 600 sex and domestic abuse allegations against officers being investigated by the Met, is that this isn't just a single bad apple, that, that there's a problem there that needs to be dealt with. Yeah. Let, me, let me focus this question on, which is about a single bad apple. Rosie W., many schools are now choosing to tackle Andrew Tate and misogyny directly in lessons and assemblies. What else can we do to help our young boys and men avoid falling into his kind of rhetoric? Can, can you remind, remind us a bit about who Andrew Tate is? Well, I'll be honest, I knew very, very little about him until he got into a Twitter spat with Greta Thunberg when he right. was boasting about how many massively expensive sports cars he has. And she did a very, 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 very amusing tweet about, which was sort of broadly related to her, her assessment of um, 
the size of his penis. He's a kind of, I mean, he's a kind of kickboxer who wears kind of shades and a leather jacket and smokes big cigars and is a TikTok yeah, and star. Yeah, he, he, he first, I think, became broad, you know, fairly well known as a contestant on Big Brother. He's currently in a prison or a, uh, or a police station in Romania. Right. He proudly calls himself a misogynist. A lot of the stuff that, that he puts out on his, on his vi- videos, and I think he's banned on quite a lot of platforms, but an awful lot of, if you talk to teachers, an awful lot of young boys follow this guy. But part of it seems to be completely artificial. So his videos have been watched 11.6 billion times, which even you, Alistair, who's a bit of social media star, has got to admit a lot. But a lot of that seems to be to do with him using allies to manipulate the algorithms on TikTok. Right. He's done an amazing sort of attempt to create copycat accounts and play with the algorithms to make himself millions of pounds. He's got 127,000 members in what he calls his Hustler University, paying £39 a month. Hustler University? £39 a month. That's pretty serious. What degrees do they give? Yeah, well, exactly. That's what you, you want to know, don't you? Yeah. I just thought he was one of these kind of, you know, people to be ignored. But once he did become much better known as a result of Greta, uh, and I did talk to a couple of people, one was a head teacher, one's a teacher, who said they really are, you know, having to struggle with the kind of, you know, very misogynist. He's also bizarrely got sort of strong views about Iran, presumably because of their, you know, approach to women's rights. Anyway, he's now he's now being investigated for all sorts of allegations of trafficking and um, abuse and all sorts of stuff. So it, it turns out if you sign up to Hustler University, you can earn up to £10,000 a month through lessons on crypto investing and earning a 48% commission for each person you refer. There we are. Oh, okay. Let's close on this one then. Uh, I, I know what the answer will be from you, Rory, because you're in Jordan. Although maybe you can get it there. But Jan Hutchinson, are you watching Happy Valley? Do we need more straight talking in government in the style of Sarah Lancashire's character, Catherine? I'm assuming you're not watching Happy Valley. It's very sad, actually. I don't know. Somebody, this is a question for, for, for listeners. Why does the BBC make it so difficult to watch BBC stuff overseas? I don't really understand that in a world where Netflix makes it possible, Amazon makes it possible. I can't even pay to watch this is stuff. Is it because they're selling it to foreign broadcasters? I don't know. I don't, don't, don't know what the problem is. Anyway, what's your answer to the question? Because I haven't seen Happy Valley. I am watching Happy Valley. Sarah Lancashire is brilliant, probably because she's married to a Burnley fan. I think that's a big, big, big part of her success. <laughs> uh, and she's a, she's a police officer. It's a kind of combination of a police drama, but it's also about her her past and her and her background and her family. The dialogue is brilliant. The other thing I think which you'd like, Roy, and I really do like, is that they have quite long scenes of dialogue. There's a wonderful scene with her sister the other day, and you kept thinking, God, how long are they going to let this run? Because, you know, most a lot of television now, it's just a zap, zap, yeah, zap, yeah, and onto yeah, the yeah. next thing, onto yeah. the next thing. So, yeah, I'm watching Happy Valley, and it's great, and we have to wrap. Very good. Well, I'm going to wrap with a cheeky final plug for good luck to you, Leo Grande, with Emma Thompson. What's that about? It's, it's about Emma Thompson plays an older woman who hires a young male lover. And it's a, it's a wonderful, it's dialogue. It's two people in a room. Oh, okay. I see, I see, I see, I see, I see. It's rather, I think it's rather wonderful. Anyway, mm. that's, my, that's my recommendation of the day. Well, final, 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 final cultural recommendation, Rory. Yep. If you can get Disney... Mary McCartney's documentary on the history of the Abbey Road Studios. Absolutely brilliant. All part of the musical education that I insist that you have. Thank you very much. Well, it's goodbye from me. See you soon. (laughs) 